you're kind of a beginner and you're new to testing and mm -hmm. you're not sure kind of how to go about doing it, my recommendation is to start with a very data-driven approach. The goal is to optimize the site to get more people engaging and getting through your funnel and ultimately buying your product. Hello and welcome to another episode of Click to Buy. I'm your host, Becca, and I have a guest today, Deborah, and we're going to be having a special episode focused completely on all things A-B testing. Well, Deborah, welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you. Thanks so much, Becca. It's great to be here. Really excited to talk A-B testing, which is one of my passions for sure. Oh, absolutely. So, um, of course, for my audience who doesn't know you yet, could you briefly maybe introduce yourself and what you do and a little bit about your uh, site, Guess the Test? Sure. So, I'm Deborah O'Malley. I'm the founder of Guess the Test, which is an experimentation resource for A-B testers. Every other week, you get to take the feature test, see if you win, guess the right test, and then apply the real life results to optimize your own success. So there's all sorts of tests. There's currently hundreds of tests on the site and they cover topics ranging from, you know, the very basics like button color all the way to super complex radical redesigns. And with each test, you get to take, see if version A or version B one guess on it. And then you see how the test was set up, the hypothesis, um, the results, the real life results, whether the test was trustworthy or not. And then there's an in-depth analysis section with test suggestions that tell you how to actually take this information for yourself and use it to apply to your own website to optimize your own success. So that's one of the things I do when I'm not doing that, producing resources yeah. to help people. I'm actually applying that to work with clients and helping them optimize their sites, doing testing and redesigns for them and taking all the theoretical knowledge from Guess the Test and applying it in real world settings to help clients. So I'm focused in all things A-B testing and then I also am an adjunct professor at Queen's University where I teach product analytics and so I teach people how to, you know, take a data-driven approach to optimizing their website. I love that. Well, thanks for sharing. I think it's been really cool throughout the podcast chatting with a lot of guests like yourself who not only are like practitioners, but also are willing to kind of pass on their knowledge and for you, especially a number of different ways. I was definitely checking out your site before our episode today and it was, it's quite fun uh, to guess the test. So I definitely recommend anyone listening after this episode or maybe while you're listening to the episode, go and uh, test yourself. Um, but maybe let's let's just start with the basics here today. Um, for anyone who's kind of new, maybe like you're a new store owner, you're trying to like get your site optimized, you're just dipping your toe into kind of experimentation. Maybe Deborah, you can explain like what is A-B testing? Yeah, so A-B testing is when you pit one element or version of a website against another. So you have version A that goes directly against version B. And I'll take the example of a button color test. It's very simple, mm -hmm. not necessarily a test I recommend people run all the time because it's mm -hmm. regarded as the bane of A-B testing because it's so simple, but it's a good example to start with so that you can wrap your head around it. So in version A, let's say you have a blue button and on version B, you change nothing but the button color to a red button and you can directly measure let's say click-through rate conversions, clicks on that button to see if version A or version B converts better. 
and you can go all the way down what's known as the funnel, which is sort of an analogy for getting somebody through your website to see if click-through uh, rate increase translates all the way down the funnel to, let's say, purchases if you have an e-commerce website. And you might find that one button, let's say version B, the variant converts much better than the original. And that's the version you'll want to implement on your website because it can bring you more clicks, more revenue, more leads, more signups, whatever your key conversion goal is. And so you can do it with button colors and you can do it with uh, pictures, images, copy, all sorts of things you can test. And you, the goal is to optimize the site to get more people engaging and getting through your funnel and ultimately buying your product or signing up for your newsletter or engaging whatever your conversion goal is. Nice. Thank you for that description. And I like how you also prefaced it. Yeah, of course, a lot of people say like the button passes, like, as you said, the bane of existence. But if you are just explaining the concept, I think it makes a lot of sense to think first about something simple. But then, um, as you mentioned, like this principle, this test can be applied to so many different things in your store. Do you maybe have like a memorable example of like a test that you've run or helped somebody with uh, recently, or maybe a test that was recently featured on Guess the Test? that that was like striking and and help people or, yeah 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 so I, I think there's one example that really comes to mind and it was not quite a button color test but it was almost as mm -hmm. simple as a button color test am i able to share the screen and show people uh, let's see uh yeah if you can share the screen and then maybe we'll give a little bit of um i'm not sure if you see on the bottom if there's a share button for you yeah, I do. All right. So I'll pull it up because I think it will be more powerful if people can see it. Yes. And then we'll maybe give a little description so the people who are audio only can understand what uh, the YouTube watchers will be able to check out. Sounds good. Okay. All right. So I'm on the guest the test site now. Can you see that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so perfect. On here, there's hundreds of tests and they're all sorted by test patterns. So you can see trends across uh, mm -hmm. different patterns. One of my favorite tests of all time is a button test and it was very, very simple. They simply changed the um, copy within the button to show a secure lock icon. So like a padlock within the button itself. Here it is. So this one says secure checkout, and you can see at mm -hmm. the end of that copy, it has a padlock. And this one simply says checkout. Now, I'd like to know from you, Becca, which version do you think one? Do you think version A with the secure checkout padlock or version B that just says checkout? Which one do you think outperformed? Mm -hmm. And just so you know, the goal here was completed transactions. So they were trying to get more people to make a purchase. Okay. I guess like, um, see now after speaking with a lot of like CRO experts is a little bit like in my head. So part of me, like the devil advocate is like, well, because there's like this symbol, maybe people weren't even like worried about there being a secure checkout until they saw this. Um, but maybe that's like overthinking it. Cause my gut reaction would be to say like, yes, I would imagine that like secure checkout, it's like another maybe like risk that you're taking care of. So I can see why that might be like an interesting thing to test. So I would guess a. 
Okay, so we're going to go with a secure checkout with the padlock. Dun, 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 dun. Let's see if you're right, Becca. The answer is version A. Well done. So you okay. guessed the right test. So with secure checkout had an enormously positive impact on conversions. And the test was actually set up in an interesting way. They tested actually four different variants. So they tested checkout, mm -hmm. checkout with a padlock icon, the word secure checkout, no padlock icon, and then secure checkout with the padlock icon. And mm -hmm. compared to the original version, which just said checkout, secure mm -hmm. checkout with the padlock icon had a hugely positive impact on conversions and um, increased the e-commerce conversion rate 15.62%. So that's huge wow. for such a simple change. And it's something anybody can do and anybody can try. Even if you don't have a lot of development shops, you know, you should be mm -hmm. able to add the word secure to your button and add a padlock icon. Now, the reason why this worked, I go into it here in the analysis section, which if you have a screen and you can see this. So don't let anybody tell you never to try a button test, because I think as you can see here, like sometimes this can be quite effective. Exactly. And especially if you're kind of a beginner and you're new to testing and mm -hmm. you're not sure kind of how to go about doing it. My recommendation is to start with a very data-driven approach. You want to make mm -hmm. sure that, you know, for example, changing the button from checkout to secure checkout with a padlock icon is actually a friction point for your visitors. And mm -hmm. you can do that through looking at the analytics data. I really like to rely on heat mapping data to see what visitors are clicking or what they're not clicking. You can look at mm -hmm. drop-off points within your funnel. I think you can set up the funnel within Google Analytics 4 and look at that. So you don't want to just necessarily be copying these ideas because I'm telling you that it won on one test because what will work for one audience and one website won't necessarily transfer it to another. But if you're looking for test ideas <clears throat> and, excuse me, <clears throat> and the, the data suggests that this is a good direction to go, then I would mm -hmm. you know definitely suggest looking at this as an idea for inspiration and seeing if it could be helpful for you. So Absolutely. Um, why it works is because it creates clarity. So, you know, an analogy is, and this is actually a real life situation that happened to me a little while ago, I was at the beach and my daughter befriended a little girl and they started playing and my daughter oh. came up to me and said, mom, can you get this lady's phone number? I really want to play with her daughter again. And I would be so devastated if I never get to see her again. And so mm -hmm. I went up to the mother and I said, can we exchange phone numbers? And the mother handed me her phone and it was in Russian. <laughs> and she <laughs> said, here, in very broken English, put in your contact information. And I looked at the screen here and I don't speak Russian. And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> where to put in my contact information. And had there been little icons here with a telephone mm -hmm. and an email address, I would have instantly known what to do. And mm -hmm. so you can see in this example here, those icons set a reference point. They create context for the text, whether the text is read or not. And the same thing happens here. When you see a padlock icon, it instantly creates symbolism in your head. Okay, this is secure. This is safe. I can proceed. And so when we create that association and we add wording like secure checkout from something like just checkout, it gives us the context that we need. It essentially translates something from Russian into an understandable language that we can then proceed with confidence and clarity to convert.
So uh, a really good way to try this on your own website to see if your website immediately resonates with somebody is to go to your site and use a tool like Google Translate and turn it into a different language that you can't understand at all. And so I turned my site, Guess the Test, into Tulugu. And uh, it's actually one of the fastest growing languages in the US, but I'm not able to read Tulugu. It just looks like little scribbles to me. And in looking at this site, you know, you won't be able to read it, but you can get a sense of what the site is portraying. And so, Rebecca, I know you know the guest the test site, but, you know, if you were to just yeah. look at this image, would you be able to kind of get a sense of what it is and what to do, where to proceed, just from looking at this image? I think what the fact that there's, the fact that there's like buttons and there's like nice icons really helps a lot. Like you at least know where you'd want to go, hopefully to take the next step on uh, investigating around or checking out your site. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's really good to hear. I'm happy to hear mm -hmm. that. So, whew, thank you. Um, <laughs> I think the orange button here really serves as an anchor to pull you mm -hmm. in. And, you know, going back to buttons and button colors, again, I want to caution people, don't just focus on button tests. There's so much more you can do, but having a call to action button in the hero section, this is called the hero section of your website, mm -hmm. top above the fold section. And something that brings in the reader is immediately noticeable and draws in clicks, I think is a very important conversion strategy. So, you know, even though you can't understand the language here, you are able to see this button is kind of buying for your attention and the user should hopefully be drawn into it to click. So these are you know, important conversion strategies that everyone can do. And in addition to that, I think a really tangible takeaway is just try testing the idea of adding a padlock icon to your mm -hmm. checkout buttons if you're an e-commerce store. Um, you might want to also try the wording secure checkout from just the word checkout and see if it helps you. It's an easy test to run. It doesn't take a lot of development resources or design resources. You can do it quickly. Mm -hmm and you might be really pleased with the results yourself. So yeah, that's, well, that's one test for, that stands out to me. Excellent, thank you so much for sharing that, for also showing us visually kind of what that looks like. I think it's really helpful for people to get like a sense of um, where they can begin. And I thought kind of two big takeaways that I had from uh, hearing you talk was uh, something you said kind of earlier on was you have to look for where like the friction point is in your store and in your customer journey and then try to create or find clarity that kind of solves that friction point. Um, and I think that's kind of a really big tip that anyone can take. Doesn't really matter what industry or what it is that you sell, um, because of course everybody has their own customer journey to set up, but just this mindset of find where those points are and then see how you can fix it with uh, the skills or resources that you have. You got it, absolutely. And the way that I do that is to mm -hmm. really rely on the data. So I mm -hmm. tend to rely mostly on quantitative data, so Google mm -hmm. Analytics, and then I also use heat mapping data to support the findings from analytics to really flush up the full story. And then if mm -hmm. there is any user experience, uh, you know, results or survey results or that kind of thing that the client also has, I'll work with that as well to really round out the picture and get a sense of who is the audience, what are their needs, and as you mentioned, what are the friction points that are stopping somebody from converting now. And so you can get a very comprehensive picture of mm -hmm. how users are behaving on the site and 
the heat mapping data for me, I'm a very visually oriented person, it really rounds out the, the full story so you can see, oh, okay, I see somebody's clicking on this button or sometimes more importantly, mm -hmm. they're not clicking on this button. That's a problem, let's change that. And then you start to form a hypothesis for how you can go about changing it and optimizing it and testing to improve conversions. Absolutely. Maybe we can, uh, I know you work with also like as a practitioner, work with like a lot of brands. Um, maybe this is something you've encountered. We've had other guests who've mentioned that in some places they face a little bit of resistance when it comes to trying to like encourage more testing across their business or within their team. Do you have any advice for how you can encourage this kind of testing mindset um, in companies or kind of taking these skills and like applying them in a little bit of like a bigger framework, let's say? Yeah, so I think there's a few things that you can do. The first is you really have to want to have a culture of testing within that organization that you're working with. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes management will be very open to culture of testing and experimentation. Other times it will kind of fall by the wayside and it's not a priority. And so mm -hmm. if you're in that situation where you're sort of going at it alone, you don't have a lot of support from the C-suite or from your team members, the first thing mm -hmm. that I would do is encourage um, your team members and also the higher ups, the C-suite, to really recognize the value of testing. And you can do that through uh, showing examples of, you know, like guess the test of mm -hmm. tests that have been conducted in the past and have brought in big returns. You can rally up team members if you're conducting any tests at all by doing kind of lunch and learn sessions or contests where mm -hmm. you do something similar to guess the test and you get everybody to vote on which version they think won and then mm -hmm. actually reveal the real life results and you can have, you know, prizes for people if they win or a leaderboard um, or just, you know, reveal the results and have people, you know, clap for the ones that guess the right test. Um, I think really speaking, management language is key. So if you're going to, mm -hmm run tests and you want resources to run tests, you need to present the ROI to them in a way that makes sense. So, you know, as a practitioner, you may be totally concerned about conversions and you can go to mm -hmm. your boss and say, I got a 37% conversion uplift and you're going to get kind of a blank stare from uh, somebody in the higher up realm that doesn't talk conversions. Their language is more about revenue or return mm -hmm. on investment or that type of thing. So you need to be extracting what you find from a conversion standpoint and turning that into something meaningful to get buy-in from the upper C-suite. So I think it's really about involving the organization and getting people's ideas. Once people see the power of it and they feel mm -hmm. like they're, they have a voice and their input is respected, then you, you'll be able to kind of get that momentum going and, and start an organization with a real culture of experimentation. But it does take work and it takes a lot of kind of fostering and stoking that fire. And then you're going to have the problem of everybody's giving you ideas and you're not going to be <laughs> able to run with all those ideas. And so that's where test planning and prioritization comes in. And mm -hmm. you can start to plan and prioritize the best ideas with the most probability to win first. And there's different formats you can do to prioritize your ideas. Um, there's different models like ICE, PI, uh, PXL. These are models and frameworks that allow you to prioritize your ideas. 
And although they're all slightly different in approach, basically, they enable you to quantify the value of the test idea and the impact that it potentially could have on the audience to know the best ideas to run with first. And so I think that's the next step once you've created that yeah. spark and that culture of organization is sort of fueled, then you want to start to really start to implement structures and frameworks that will allow you to carry out in an organized way that's going to continue to yield positive results. So that was a great segue, what you mentioned about planning when it comes to thinking about hopefully you get to a point where you have so many test ideas, you have to kind of pick and choose. Uh, one question that I've seen a lot actually is how long should an A-B test run ideally? All right, million dollar question. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I'm ready for it. However, if it's okay, I'll share my screen again because I've actually oh, yeah, sure. if you have one. answered this question on Guess the Test because it comes up so often and mm -hmm. it is it is not an easy answer. It's a very convoluted answer. I'll just make sure that the screen is uploading properly. Oh, perfect. Um, okay, so under the resources section here, I have a whole bunch of articles and you can search by very top, various topics or you can scroll down and search. And one of your questions may be, how long should an AV test run? There we and go. <laughs> so <laughs> you can read this article or the quick synopsis is basically you want to have an AV test run within the time period of two weeks to a maximum of about six weeks. And I'm going to go into that in a little bit more depth in a second, yeah. but let me start with two to six weeks and the rationale for that. So two weeks is the minimum. And the reason why is because you want to be rounding out the data discrepancies that may happen, for mm -hmm. example, over the weekend. So let's say hypothetically you're in an e-commerce store and you get a flood of sales over the weekend, but then they slow down over the week. If you only run the test for one week, you're not going to have a very clear picture of how users are behaving over a prolonged time period. Whereas if you have it over two weeks, then you'll have those two weekend segments in there and you can see the patterns start to emerge a little bit more clearly. So two weeks is really the minimum amount of time. Now I'm going to talk about that a little bit more because this is yeah. a broad you know, sort of suggestion. And six mm -hmm. weeks is really the longest amount of time because there's a lot of complex statistical reasons, but after about six weeks, things start to become a little bit more muddied in terms of the data and the reliability of the data. So, you know, you have gotcha. these expiring, you have uh, user behavior possibly changing, you have seasonality effects, you have all these different things that start to confound the data a little bit when you run it for too long. So as a result of that, you want to ensure that you have enough traffic when you're testing to be able to limit your testing time period to about no longer than six weeks. If it runs on seven weeks, eight weeks, you're probably okay, but you don't want it running for months. Now, mm -hmm. within that ideal framework, what's really important, even more than how long you run it, is that you meet your sample size requirements. And, mm -hmm. um, in order to see how large your sample size needs to be, you need to really use a calculator. And ideally, you should be using a calculator that allows you to calculate your sample size requirements ahead of your testing time period. So I'm going to say that again. You should be calculating sample yeah. size ahead of running the study. And the reason why 
I'm just going to refresh the screen so you can see the calculator, is that you need to ensure you have a large enough uh, sample size mm -hmm. to be able to accurately detect a statistically significant effect. Now, I'm not going to get too much into the statistics here, yeah. but <laughs> statistical significance is the gold standard for A-B testing. It's what experimenters rely on to know whether a result is accurate or valid and whether we should implement an A-B test. But, and this is a huge but, you can get a statistically significant result with very low traffic and the test is actually underpowered. And what power does, it's like a sensitivity, it's like a thermometer, you can think of it. It tells you essentially how accurately the conversion difference that you've detected mm. in your study mm -hmm. has been accurately detected. And so you need your study to be adequately powered to be able to accurately detect that conversion difference. And if it's underpowered, which tends to happen when you have a small sample size, the conversion mm -hmm. difference may appear huge, but it's not actually accurate. It's sort of a, a fallacy or a fault of the way that the statistics are set up. And so mm -hmm. it's really crucial you have adequate power to accurately detect the conversion difference. And the way that you do that is you run a sample size calculator ahead of running the study to A, know if you have enough traffic to actually even be A-B testing in the first place, and mm -hmm. to know how long you're going to have to run the study in order to meet those traffic requirements. And so I recommend going to this website here. It's called evanmiller.org. And mm -hmm. it, it has a simple but also very complex sample size calculator. So I'll be honest and say it took me years to really fully understand these four yeah. terms. So let's go through them. Baseline conversion rate is the baseline. The, conversion rate that you are starting with right now for this web page mm -hmm. or this website that you're testing. So the average conversion rate for an e-commerce store is two to 5%. So let's put in the bottom conversion rate because you're new to optimizing and you're still, you know, looking to really increase your conversion rate. So you yeah, have two like they're just getting started. <laughs> okay. Now we have minimum detectable effect. Now this is a very complicated term. I still haven't fully wrapped my head around it, but let's break down these words. Minimum, smallest, detectable, something you can detect, and effect is essentially, in layman's terms, the conversion difference. So the conversion difference between the control, usually variant A, and the treatment, usually variant B. What the question here with minimum detectable effect is what do you expect that conversion difference to be? Now that's a really hard question to answer because you haven't run the test and you're just hoping mm -hmm. that you're actually going to get a win and get a high conversion lift. So you could put in, oh, I expect it to be, you know, a hundred percent conversion difference or effect, but that's not going to be realistic most of the time. And so what I've learned over the years of testing is that the average accurate minimum detectable effect based on large organizations that are properly running tests based on huge sample sizes is actually between mm -hmm. about two to 5%. So you can expect on a, a really, really good test that actually wins for it to move the needle and increase conversions up to a maximum of about 
anything above 5%, according to a statistician named Ronnie Kohavi, who's revered in the mm -hmm. field, is likely not an accurate conversion lift and is going to lead to something called the winner's curse, which means it looks like you have a positive result initially, but in actuality, if you implement it, it's a curse because it's actually going to drag down conversions rather than increase them. So unless you have historical evidence to show that your effect size over time is larger than 5%, you should be really cautious, number one, about studies that say they're getting huge conversion lifts, and number two, in setting your own effect size at 5% or less. So let's go with the kind of lower end of the spectrum and put in the minimal mm -hmm. detectable effect at 2%. So that means we're hoping for a 2% conversion lift, which sounds small, but you know, if we have revenue, we could really move the yeah. needle to 2% conversion lift. So now we have these two uh, options here, absolute and relative. And so that's really just the way that the percent is being calculated. If you're actually adding 2% onto 2% or if you're looking at it as a percentage of 2% increase. So a range between negative 1.96 or 2.04. Now most mm -hmm. clients are used to seeing relative reported. So whenever possible, I would suggest that you use relative. So we have a 2% baseline. That's our average conversion rate, a 2% minimum detectable effect, a relative mm -hmm. detectable effect. And let's go here to statistical power. So I talked briefly about power. That's our sensitivity monitor. We can leave it at 80%. That's our default. And essentially what that means in simple terms is 80% of the time, our minimum effect size will be accurately detected. Now that actually assumes that an effect exists. <laughs> we could get mm -hmm. into that, but uh, yeah, it's based around the null hypothesis. But assuming there is an effect, 80% of the time it will be accurately detected. So we're saying, well, we're willing to accept a 20% margin of error, but that's mm -hmm. good enough. So we'll leave power at 80, that's considered standard in the industry. And then significance level alpha is related to the percentage of time the difference will be detected assuming a difference doesn't actually exist. So you may be saying, yeah. what? Um, <laughs> so we have to assume when we go into testing that there is no difference between versions. That's our null hypothesis. And we want to reject our null hypothesis and show that there actually is a difference. And that difference is surprising and it's exciting to us. And it's significant, that difference. It's truly significant. And that is what gives us our statistical significance. So this concept of here of significance level alpha is related to statistical significance and also our confidence level. And we just leave it at 5%. That's standard. So we don't have to touch these dials. We just need to put mm -hmm. in our conversion rate and our minimum detectable effect. When we do so, we leave these two standards. Woo, we need an awfully yeah. large size, 1.9 yeah. million visitors per variant, per variant. <laughs> <laughs> now, if we go to the very upper range of that, um, so again, industry standard is the baseline conversion rate at around 2.5%, and let's go to a minimum detectable effect of 5%. Our sample size requirements go down substantially. However, mm -hmm. we still need a sample size of 120,000 visitors per variant, which means mm -hmm. if you're going to be testing, you need an 
awful lot of traffic in order to actually accurately run tests that are going to get meaningful results. So the minimum, you know, rule of thumb mm -hmm. is you need about 240,000 visitors in the amount of time that you plan to run the test and the amount of time you plan to run the test should be in a window of two to six weeks. If you don't have 240,000 visitors in a six week time period, chances are you're not going to get all that accurate data and you should really mm -hmm. question if you actually want to be running an A-B test. Now for all the little guys out there, for the 88% of websites that don't have this kind of traffic, can you A-B test? Should you A-B test? <laughs> it becomes a little bit of a philosophical question and the answer yeah. is you can A-B test, you're just probably not going to get as accurate data as you want. Mm -hmm. So it becomes kind of a risk to reward ratio and testing is all about mm -hmm. mitigating risk. That is why we test because we only expose 50% of the traffic to the variant we're testing. And mm -hmm. so now we have the risk of how accurate is our data? How much can we trust our data? And, you know, that's a, a question each organization has to answer themselves. Yeah. Um, sometimes the, you know, validation of yeah the state it's heading in the right direction this seems like we're, we're doing this right is enough to say okay well the data may not be totally accurate but we are getting positive effects and what i really recommend is that you continue to monitor your bottom line that key conversion mm -hmm. objective which is revenue in most cases for most organizations and make sure you're seeing the revenue or the e-commerce transaction sales go up over time even if you can't totally trust the test data. So, you know, there's data purists out there, Ronnie Kohavi being one of them who would say, no, you absolutely yeah. have to have the right sample size. <laughs> uh, working with clients who, you know, don't always have this kind of traffic, I say, I think you have to meet somewhere in the middle. There's the, the pure data purists and then there's the practical purists. <laughs> there's, I think, yeah. a balance in between both where, if you have the evidence to suggest that this is leading in the right direction and you're taking the measures to ensure that revenue is going up or your conversion rate is going up, then continue to use testing as a form of validation, but don't absolutely buy into the data because it's probably not going to be accurate unless you have that sample size requirement. Yeah, so, well, thank you, Deborah. I think this is like, it's it's great. It already answered my question, but also you answered like another question I've always wondered was about the sample size. So I think it's really good for people out there, exactly what you said, like 240, like that would be, okay, that would be ideal. But of course, like if you're a little guy, a smaller guy, that doesn't mean you can't try to test. And we actually did a previous episode with Ruben DeBoer and it was all about if you don't have enough traffic other types of tests you can do so i think yeah. this will be a really nice like back-to-back a -back, uh, little episode pack for brands that are growing or maybe scaling to figure out how do you kind of get those initial maybe data-driven decisions made so that way when you hopefully have gotten enough traffic you can um meet even those who are on the as you said the spectrum of data purists versus uh somewhere in the middle. I think this is great advice for brands who are trying to grow. Um, and thanks for explaining. I think a lot of times maybe some people are a bit afraid of testing just because they might not understand certain concepts. But I think the way you broke it down is a really like an easy way to understand how everything kind of adds itself together.
Right. Well, I've been trying to understand this stuff for over a decade myself, and I yeah. have seemingly simple questions like, how big of a sample size do I need to test mm -hmm. and get these really, really complex answers or no answer at all? Or the typical answer is, it depends. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> what I've learned in you know 10 years of testing is it does not depend at all. It <laughs> does not depend at all. What it does depend on is four factors. And these four factors are the baseline conversion rate, the minimum detectable effect, the amount of power you're willing to accept, and the significance level alpha. Those are the factors that it depends on. And for each website and each traffic situation, it's different. And so <laughs> the easy answer is it depends. But if you understand <laughs> these concepts, which is taken me years to do because they're not simple concepts. I'm, I'm not a stats person mm -hmm. naturally. Um, I actually <laughs> thought I was really smart in university for my undergrad. I patted myself on the back because I managed to avoid taking a single math course in university and I was so proud of myself. And then I went to do my master's and I had to take a master's level stats course. And I'm like, oh my God, how am I gonna get through this? And I got through with a lot of hard work and persistence and studying and I actually had a tutor help me. And after that, I launched into this field and you need stats in order to proficiently be A-B testing, especially in my situation where I'm running a resource for other people and I have to mm -hmm. you know, accurately share test data. And so I spent much of my energy and time, you know, properly learning the stats and explaining in a way that I can understand it. Cause I feel if I can understand it, then anyone can understand it because I'm not. I love not that. I to I'm totally there with you. When I went to do my master's as well, it was like, oh, here we go. We got to take a take a stats class. But it, it really does help, I think, uh, hearing different people explain it and break it down because um, then you can kind of get a grasp for it and how it can apply to clearly a lot of different uh, websites out there just from knowing kind of this base, well, not basic, because as you said, it took a long time to learn what it all means. But if you can get this um, basic understanding of it, um, as you mentioned, kind of anyone could try this on their site with the right um, test set up on their uh, and the right amount of traffic. Exactly. You got it. Yeah. And I have nice. well, for mm -hmm. people, if they're interested, you know, how long should I run an A-B test? Uh, what do I, here, I'll just go to this next page here. Oh, it's not sharing. Share it again. Yeah, maybe you can uh, share the resource. I definitely want to hit a couple more questions before I uh, wrap up here with you today. Sure. Um, I can share the resources later, but I just want to point people to, mm -hmm. if you need to learn how to calculate minimum detectable effect, I have a whole mm -hmm. article breaking that down with analytics data that you can go into and kind of follow along for your own. And if you want to learn about statistical significance, um, this article here was harder than writing my master's thesis. It went through so many different edits before <laughs> it was finally kind of approved by the powers that be in the stats world. But this is my best attempt at clearly explaining what StatSig is and what it means for AV testing. Excellent. Thank you. I think there. that's all. Also kind of a nice metaphor for a lot of um, people I've chatted with before have said like it's kind of like when you're building like something for your e-commerce store, there's never really like the perfect page. It's always something that you're reiterating and changing and improving and optimizing. Um, 
So I think that's also kind of a big part of what you're teaching people how to do is how do you take something and um, with each test or as you mentioned before, like there's different things like seasonality. There's lots of things that can come into play or different things that might make sense to test or try during different periods. Uh, so Black Friday is coming up. So I was curious if you had any kind of Black Friday, Cyber Monday specific advice uh, for kind of how to maybe how to prepare your testing for this uh, busy period or high traffic period. Yeah, so my advice is actually going to be a little bit counterintuitive and that's okay. to not test. Mm. So during Black Friday, you're really on the hook for getting as many sales as possible. And if you're fooling around mm. with your website and you're testing and maybe something doesn't work or the test doesn't load mm -hmm. or track properly or there's some kind of issue that's going on, your Black Friday sales can really suffer. So I'd actually mm -hmm. recommend not running any tests right around the Black Friday time period and working up to getting your site as optimized as possible before Black Friday and probably stopping about a two to three week time period ahead of Black Friday. So that gives you till you know roughly about the beginning of November to get your site mm -hmm. as optimized as possible. And then from there, actually just keep it static over the Black Friday period and you know don't mess anything up <laughs> there's the yeah good. don't mess anything up for sure yeah. <laughs> well I, I love that advice it's actually kind of like think about black friday when it's not black friday by getting all your testing all of your optimization done before you get to that period mm -hmm. um as you said counterintuitive but it does make a lot of sense uh that you wouldn't want to risk anything breaking right before the one of the most important um high volume kind of shopping periods uh, so I actually have a question for you from a previous guest that I would love to get your answer on. Sure. It actually touches touches on something that you already brought up yourself earlier. So earlier you were talking about how to kind of create buy-in for a testing mindset within your company. Mm -hmm. So one of our previous guests, Nils, was curious for your thoughts on um, how can you make sure like you're running the right tests or kind of in other words, how can you make sure that your testing has ROI? Yeah, so I think it really goes back to the data and it goes mm -hmm. back to the planning and prioritization approach. So I'll, I'll pull up this uh, article here where I break down test planning and prioritization and some of the things mm -hmm. that you can do. So this was actually a video interview that I did with a person named Sean David. He was mm -hmm. formerly a Spiro, which is a large A-B testing agency. And uh, he's now since moved on to do his own uh, automation platform. But while he was at Spiro, he was responsible for setting up their test planning and prioritization kind of framework. And I was fortunate enough to get a special preview into it and he shared it with me. So nice. I won't go through the video because it's 11 minutes long and it would take up a lot of your time. But essentially <laughs> what the, the framework is, is you have to decide on a test plan and prioritization model to begin with. So I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. there's PI, there's ICE, there's PXL. And there's other frameworks, including one that I've developed myself for the clients I work with. And it's kind of a combination of all of them. And I'll pull up CXL's framework here so that you can see it. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, it's essentially a spreadsheet. And uh, it's not loading here. I'll just pull up the spreadsheet. 
Anyway, um, if we can't get it to load, basically the essence of it is that you want to have a way to measure and record each test. You want to have a testing repository where you're quantitatively able to evaluate the kind of validity of each test idea. And so mm -hmm. the PXL framework looks at, okay, how important is this test? What kind of impact is this test going to have on the audience? Is it above the fold and seen by a lot of people or not? Is it, does it take a lot of dev resources to develop or design resources to create the test? Uh, so, you know, what's the effort? Mm -hmm. What level of ease can you implement the test? And what's the expected outcome going to be on the test? And it's a quantitative exercise, but really it does become qualitative because you may become yeah. more interested in other test ideas or not have an accurate sense of how long it's going to take to develop, for example. Um, but it's, it's the best framework that experimenters have so far in terms of being able to validate a test idea because what we want to get away from is either management or people on our team throwing out test ideas and saying, mm -hmm. you know, oh, let's do that because, you know, my wife likes the color blue or, oh, I think this yeah. is going to work because, you know, I, I saw an example of it somewhere else or I just have a gut feeling or even worse than all of that saying, no, we don't need to test that. That's not a good idea when we take everybody's ideas and everybody's input and we treat every idea the same way by putting it in a spreadsheet evaluating for each metric and each qualification or criteria then the ones that are going to outperform start to kind of naturally rise to the top now yes there mm -hmm. is subjectivity in that but one good way that we can get around that subjectivity and this is an idea from another experimenter uh, what is his name? I forget his name right now, but it's not my idea. I, I won't take that. That's all right. Is um, he said, actually get a group together and evaluate the, you know, those quantitative metrics together as a group. And the ones where you start to fight about, yes, this is a good idea or not a good idea. The ones that have that rapid divide or spread between them, those are the ideas you should really be honing in on because it has the chance mm. to swing things either really negatively or really positively if you can't agree on them. If you agree on them, it's probably likely that it's not going to move the needle as much as those ones where there's very disparate opinions. So, um, you know, as a, like a consultant for companies, I tend to do the evaluation myself, but if you have the ability mm -hmm. to work with a team um, or, you know, different people across the organization to evaluate the ideas that's really recommended. So once you've planned and prioritized the ideas, the top ideas will start to kind of rise to the top. Um, mm -hmm. They'll be the highest rated or the highest uh, number or percentage within your spreadsheet. And then what you need to do is um, create sort of a, a model where you can plan those ideas and then start to implement them and keep track of them and see what works and what doesn't work. And so the planning and prioritization matrix that Sean shared with me from PX from CXL uh, goes through all that. And basically the tool they're using is Airtable and a lot of experimenters mm -hmm. use Airtable to keep track of their tests, have a test repository and plan and prioritize the ideas. 
Now, I may have gotten awesome. away from your question a little bit. That's all right. It was it was still a lot of like really useful information. Um, and I think what you mentioned that was also nice is um, a lot of people might be wondering, like, how do you figure out what to test? And so it's nice to have kind of a framework to pull back to and how you mentioned, like discussing it with the group um, and seeing what are the things that stick out. I also, uh, I don't remember who I read this from as well, um, but there was some expert that said like, if you can't decide and you have a couple different tests that you're thinking of running, like pick the one that's kind of like the boldest, like the big change, the big idea, um, because that might be the biggest gamble, but it seems like often that has the opportunity to pay off. So maybe they uh, read or heard from that expert that you were mentioning as well. Yeah, because uh, it sounds like a very similar mindset. Definitely. And definitely the evidence out there suggests that bigger swing changes tend to have a bigger, you know, sort of impact in terms of conversion effect size or conversion difference. And yeah. so it's a fine balance between changing a bunch of things on the page or on the site and not mm -hmm. being able to attribute any one change to, you know, what led to the conversion difference. Mm -hmm and also doing big swings and changing a lot of things and getting a larger effect. So likely often, the more you change the larger or potentially more negative, the conversion impact will be. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. you don't know exactly what it is that caused that conversion difference. So there's mm -hmm. one school of thought that says you should only change one thing at a time and do it very iteratively because then you'll be mm -hmm. able to identify exactly what it is. And there's another school of thought that totally abandons that and it says, no, just go yeah. through the swings and change as much as you can to get that conversion difference. So where you as an organization sit within that model, you know, it can be a little bit of both. Um, and mm -hmm. it's going to be about your needs. And if you want to be really fine tooth comb identifying you know, subtle little things that may be making a difference, mm -hmm. or if you just want to be going out there and getting big gains, either if you're an agency running tests for clients or trying to up your conversion mm -hmm. rate quickly yourself. Um, yeah, well, Deborah, I'm sorry, I have to kind of wrap this up here. Um, but I absolutely love all the great knowledge you've shared today. And before we kind of cut this off, I would love to know, like, just like we've had a guest bring a question for you. Do you perhaps have a question that I can pass along to our next guest? Yeah, I would really love to learn more about minimum detectable effect and how to okay. accurately calculate it ahead of time. The guideline that I've been given is 2 to 5%. That's based on mm -hmm. historical evidence from lots of A-B testers. But, you know, I'd love to understand how to accurately calculate it ahead of running the test. The other thing I'd love to know is about confidence intervals and how confidence mm. intervals play into statistical significance and you know, determine mm -hmm. power and those kinds of things. So it gets really nerdy on yeah. the side, but uh, I'd love to delve into them and get a really clear explanation from somebody um, who is able to explain it in a way that actually makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think I have the perfect guess for that. I won't name names yet, but I will pass that along to you as soon as I have their answer on the podcast as well. Okay, great. Fantastic. Well, thank, thank you so much for it. Uh, absolutely wonderful episode so everyone uh just in case you forgot so this was a deborah o'malley from guess the test we'll be sure to link all those great resources she shared in our show notes and uh see you on for our next episode soon of click to buy all thanks right. for coming deborah yeah thank you thanks so much